Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests 4% of its after-tax profits in projects that benefit people, our communities and the planet. To find out more, go to bankost.com.au, where you bank every day makes a difference. But I think it's interesting that nature is both a stimulus for action, but it's also a place for restoration. Hi, I'm Diane Cotter from Dumbo Feather magazine, and you're listening to a special climate change series of the Dumbo Feather podcast. We've created this series to coincide with edition 52 of the magazine, full of people who have turned their concerns for the planet into much needed action. One of the first steps in acting on climate change is to come to terms with how we feel about it. It's something psychologist Carol Ride has some good insight into. As founder of Psychologists for a Safe Climate, Carol helps people emotionally deal with the idea of climate change and support those who are impacted by it. She spoke with our editor Nathan Scalara about her work and how we can move beyond those feelings of complete overwhelm and what on earth can I do into a healthy state of action. As you know, we have this (laughs) magazine that's just come off the press about climate change. And while we were putting together this magazine and hearing lots of the stories of the kind of climate warriors in Australia and beyond, we noticed that a lot of them had done quite a bit of self-work before they could actually go out and contribute and act on this issue, the biggest issue of our time, which can be very despairing for a lot of people, can create a lot of paralysis. But these people had kind of mobilised themselves beyond that to act. And so... That prompted us to think, are there people working in this space? And then we came across your work, Carol, um, Psychologist for the Safe Planet, and it was very intriguing. And so I'm looking forward to learning um, about the work you're doing. But I guess perhaps we can just start with the importance of inner, inner work when it comes to climate change. Well, it is critically important, and that is why our, our group formed. Um, we were a number of psychologists and psychotherapists who were already involved in the climate movement, and um, people started saying, look, you're a psychologist, can you help us understand why it is that people don't get climate change, why they won't engage with it? It was out of the frustration people felt. And I sort of came to realise that, having been a psychologist for 30 years, there actually was something from my past that was really relevant and it took a while to realise that actually we had a lot to contribute in terms of helping people understand themselves and each other and the, the great difficulty we have coming to terms with something as distant as climate change in terms of future impacts being the most profound, although we're already experiencing impacts now, and the the feelings that it arouses in people, the fears, the anxiety, the uncertainty, 
and the wonderful capacity we have as human beings to defend ourselves when something's frightening or anxiety-provoking is to shut down to it and push it away and leave it for others or think it's nothing to do with ourselves ever or thinking that um, putting blame on somebody else or dividing it up into something that's, yes, it's a problem, but we, you know, somebody will come up with a magical solution, mm-hmm. sort of like a magical answer. So we've got amazing capacity as as people to be able to protect ourselves mm-hmm. when something is 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 overwhelming and, and not immediately solvable. Because as humans, we are pretty well wired for immediate threats, but when something is not immediately um able to be resolved we we just um, have got a lot of uh, ways of protecting ourselves mm. so action comes from being quite proximate to the issue for us t- typically typically we have to be able to yeah. see the disaster right in front of us yes or... a, you know there's a, a a fire we you know we run <laughs> if there's a, yeah. a frightening dog will run wrong away in the park uh, if something is immediately threatening mm. we've got a capacity to really mm. um, rally ourselves and, and, and um, protect and, ourselves. Or yeah. But sadly, might. the immediate effects of climate change that is happening right now in the world are happening to kind of remote communities, the disadvantaged, mm. people that we can't see. That we don't typically. see. Yeah. And that's why people say, look, when it is sort of really in our faces, we'll actually um, perhaps uh, rally ourselves enough to... to um, to fight it, and yet we know that when it's on the doorsteps of people living in cities in Australia, um, when there are bushfires, people start, you know, they 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 think a bit more about climate change being a threat, and then you know the season passes, and the next season there isn't a bushfire, and they they go into shutdown again. So it's really. Um, it's really about helping people understand the enormity of the problem, helping them engage with the science, helping them deal with the feelings that it arouses, helping them connect with other people in order to um, think about what it means for them personally and what they can do. Mm. I want to talk about the feelings in particular, how you help people with the anxiety and, and the despair and the fear that they have around this issue. Often it's um, people don't immediately recognise that's what they, they're feeling, that they're frightened or they're anxious. Um, I can remember a talk, um, somebody asked a question and said, look, I used to be really engaged with climate change and then I've found that in the last couple of years I've sort of distanced from it. And I talked a bit further and said, I wonder whether it's actually that you feel quite a lot of grief about it. That, that you were engaged with it until it be, you became aware of how big it was, how much it was um, quite frightening, how much um, it was going to impact on your life and the, the people that were important to you and so and, and how much um, sadness you felt about the fact that we'd let this creep up on us just in you know the last really 30 to 50 years and without... And without heeding the warning signs and the you know, the alerts that were given to us, and people would feel enormous grief and even shame about that that they haven't actually been tuned in to what they've been told about. And so again, people can not know it's grief, feel sad, and then distance from the issue rather than stay with and really mourn what we're having to deal with because this is 
are just a disastrous loss that we are actually facing for humanity and for current generations and future generations, even if we tackle climate change, you know, at an emergency pace, where the ramifications are going to be felt yeah. by for years to come and for generations. If, and, you know, we may have put past the point where we can ever stabilise the climate back to something safe. So so there's this sadness and, and a real, really deep grief about that. And so what does it look like if we acknowledge our grief? Okay, this is, this is a deep mourning that I'm going through. Mm. How does that then lead us into action? What is the relationship there well, between? Well, um, grief around climate change is like any grief. It's got very many faces. Um, at first, there's... Um, often denial associated with grief when people hear shocking bad news their first response is oh no it's sort of like it it really is at first no it couldn't be true and then then there's a gradual realization often people feel very angry and certainly a lot of people feel very angry about climate change and the lack of action Um, people feel sadness Um, they feel a yearning for what was lost they they long for what used to be and I think that's relevant in terms of thinking about the places we love and the loss of places in nature that are very precious that people know are under threat or have been ruined Um, so they have a yearning for what was lost and that's part of a grief process but like any grief ultimately if it's dealt with through the stages and stayed with there is a point at which people can come to acceptance that this is what the reality the new reality is and that can be a time when they then can engage with or if this is a new reality how do I engage with that reality and what can I do mm-hmm. and so I think that a lot for a lot of people who are engaged in climate the climate movement um, I think Many of them are wavering and, you know, lost in various parts of that grief, but many of them have got to that point of of action that's based in we have to come to terms with what's happening now and do what we can now and engage as fast as we can with what really has to be tackled. Create solutions with the new reality. That yes. Exists. So interesting. And part of the reality is that, you know, we've got a very short time interval, of course, to actually in which we can do something. We can't just get caught in this idea that we've got another 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Have you, have you seen this at all? Can you give us a real-life example of what this might look with, look like with someone that you've worked with? Mm, well, um, I'm not working as a therapist anymore. I'm working um, as a, in the climate movement as a, both as a climate activist and as a psychologist in, in for the group Psychology for a Safe Climate. And we run um, workshops for climate activists um, to help them have a place where they can express their, their feelings about climate change. We often use art material methods and give them um, some sort of uh, particular a theme to address and then help them, um, then we give them the materials to express their response to that theme and then in groups we, we have a chance, people have a chance to talk about what they feel. And the most common uh, feeling out of all of those groups, and we've run probably 20 to 30 of them by now, um, is that people find that they're relieved that other people they're relieved to have the chance to talk about how they feel, even if it's angry, sad, deep, deep and despair. Deep despair. Yeah. And they feel relieved that there are other people who feel as they do. 
and that is very, very bonding for the, for people. Part of all the workshops is then to help people um, think about and give them some experiences of how to care for themselves. Um, a new area of psychology is called mindful self-compassion and um, everyone's heard of mindfulness by now but self-compassion is perhaps not something people are so familiar with although the Buddhists are very familiar with self-compassion um, and so we we, we're using this method we help people think about how to care for themselves in the way that they would care in a loving way for a dear friend mm. and so to think about if they were in the if the friend was in the circumstances they were in how would they respond to that friend um, and how, what sort of care and understanding would they give that person and what sort of suggestions might they make about supporting that person to take care of themselves and so we try to help people think about themselves in that way. I'm interested in your journey to coming to do this work you said you've had 20 years plus working as a psychologist yeah how do you then shift your attention to this specific issue and, and um, what prompted you and well um I I became interested in climate change reading Tim Flannery's The Weathermakers oh, yes. and um, when I read that book I just it really blew my mind I thought my god I I knew that this was something I needed to delve into but I had like I'm talking about people you know being resistant to wanting to know um, I was I was resistant to wanting to know and but a friend of mine encouraged me to read the book and really I have to say it was just life-changing I just thought this is something that really is just so alarming and so concerning we have to get involved in it and sort of felt um, I, I helped form a local community climate action group um, and we started doing things, uh, you know, it's really quite a few years, so over 10 years ago, um, around elections and, you know, trying to get climate change on the agenda in the electorate that I was living in. Um, and then the group grew and then, of course, other groups were forming in Melbourne at, at the same time and we joined together to do various things together and you know was involved in some of the early climate marches and the, the messages on the beach making letters out of people amazing and, yeah, and on so really the bridge using your political power on yeah, yes, yes. I, I mean right from oh i think it's absolutely critical that we amazing. join together and that this is that we let our leaders know that this is of critical importance yeah, to the people it's something and, that we forget we can do as well it's the main thing we can do yeah. it's it's the main thing we can do because um, I think, you know, the idea that we can make personal changes is certainly it's it's good people ride bikes and they put solar panels on and so on, but we're never going to solve this problem by those sorts of personal efforts we need to band together um, and unite in um, putting pressure on those who are in the position to do something, which mm. is our political leaders. Mm. Okay. So you have a, a period of political action. <laughs> I did. I did. And as I said to you before, um, it was through that that a few people asked me. Right. They knew that I was a psychologist and said, look, help. how can you help us understand this? And so um, the first thing I talk I gave was actually on the steps of Parliament to a little rally organised by um, LIV, the local centre Victorians environment, mm -hmm. and they had a deck, deck chair, sorry, deck chair um rally that every day they had somebody speaking on this the steps of parliament and so I spoke about climate change denial and some of the things I've talked to you about and that was the first time and then it was really through that realised that 
actually I needed to band together with other people in my field, which we did, and um, and formed our group that, and worked out what we could contribute. Wow. So you could see those connections quite early on between this big issue that we're experiencing and and the kind of psychological, emotional yes, well, struggles I, that Yes, I had. could. Be, yeah. Well, and it was through my... My, my Practice, friends yeah. in the climate movement were saying, oh, hey, okay. we need to understand people. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I have to say I was um, a bit slow to, to come on board with that. But, <laughs> um, but once I realised that, that, you know, we had to understand the psychology was, was critical, yeah. critical to help people understand um, each other and, and themselves. Yeah. I find for myself when I'm, when I'm most emotionally connected with this issue is when I'm actually in nature. And I feel the the power of nature and the beauty of nature, mm. and it moves me. And and then it's that sense that this could not exist. That's when I really feel that mm. that deep commitment to action. But I'm also aware that a lot of us, particularly in urban environments, don't have yeah. the proximity or the access mm. to nature like that. So it's that might be part of the the struggle. Yeah, well, I think that people are distant from from nature. Many kids, you know, they're playing the backyard even, let alone play in the bush, do they? They, They're on the gadgets and TV and being raced from A to B after school and so on. But I think it's interesting that nature is both um, a stimulus for action but it's also a place for restoration for, and and that's really important for people who are climate activists all talk about and needing to have some space away in nature. Yeah, I'd like to talk about resilience as well. Resilience, I, I... is perhaps it is connected with what we're talking about in terms of people knowing how they feel and feeling safe to express it, yeah. and having other having people in their circle that they can talk about how they really feel, yeah. and be listened to and honoured around that. That's that's certainly builds some emotional resilience. Um, I think facing reality, um, and of course that is part of that process is is really important in building resilience. Um, and I think people can manage far bigger range of emotions if they are supported by other people mm. rather than if they're alone and isolated mm. from from other people. Mm. And we know that's part of development, that human development, that you know, kids grow up emotionally resilient if they're allowed to express their feelings and have them support those feelings supported by those around them right. as they're growing yeah. uh, rather than forced to shut them down and... And keep away from them. Okay. That our leaders have let us down dramatically in mm. that realm. That they mm. don't talk about how serious the problem is. They talk about targets and you know meeting the Paris targets that are so pathetic anyway. Mm. Um, <laughs> instead of bringing people along with, we've got a problem. We've we've got the capacity to solve if we pull together. The sort of language that was used in the era of the of the World War Two and where mm, where yeah. people were where leaders spelt out how difficult the problem was but brought the people with them and that helps people feel more more strength because they feel like the the people who are in the leadership position know how the problem is how bad the problem is and of how using every resource at their fingertips to yeah. to resolve it and that helps people then feel like they're they're joining together oh, with right. others so this sounds to me like storytelling and narrative is such a big part of this. yeah and but not you know true stories not you know not no, that's yeah, true. <laughs> but i mean it's, it's, it's it's really critical to mm-hmm. to people and i think it's partly why there is a lot of despair about climate change is because 
our leaders are not taking up the issue. They're mm. talking about, you know, they're fighting about um, whether we need to still stay in the coal era rather than mm. really talking about how how alarming the science is and how... Which leads us, I guess, into that question of hope. Um, and hope, when, yes. When we do face all of these troubles with our, our leaders and we have Trump pulling out of major global agreements, where do we find the hope? And, and well, um, it do is... Do we need hope? I mean, we I, do need arguments hope. now. I think that, we do that. need hope. And, and I think it is hard to feel hopeful. And that's again, comes back to why there needs to be much more community pressure on our leaders to take up that that role that yeah. we that we so urgently need yeah. um, and that we need each other to be able to put do that uh, put that pressure on yeah. and and so as individuals i think the hope comes from people um, knowing how how serious the problem is knowing what their their capacities are um, feeling gratitude for what they do have um, and so that they can actually, that that, that is a greatly um, reinforcing um, experience. I think I love to that. acknowledge. I thought about gratitude in this. Yeah, and it's just like what you were talking about going to the out uh, into nature. nature. It's sort of yeah. like you you feel, you know, it's, it's awe and wonder and, and gratitude, isn't yeah. it? That you feel it, the, the wonder of nature that actually does help you feel. Um, Oh, just good within yourself, yeah. I think, and and it does then mobilise. I think more yeah. constructive and um, and outward looking sorts of activities. Yeah. So I saw on I saw on your website there's a model which maybe you can explain to us or talk to, um, which kind of looks at the mental health impacts of climate change. And I, and is it is it this conversation that we've been having, or is the mental impact of climate change? On us as individuals are different no no you know, i think it's all within that there's there's the mental health impacts are, are what we've been talking yeah. about um and of course they're the more um extreme impacts that are really problematic when when um the the feelings we're talking about actually develop further into into depression or to um uh. people really breaking down uh, mentally because um because they haven't got the supports to help them deal with it and so it develops into a sort of a more serious um, depression or um, some sort of psychotic break that could occur if somebody's sort of probably disposed because Mm. when something's frightening it can trigger sort of um, capacity or can trigger something from within that... um, it means a person can't cope with the reality and it you know yeah, so right. that they're the most extreme ends yeah. but of course um there are also the 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 health mental health impacts of people actually experiencing climate change like people living in very um hot say environments where they're having to uh, work in extremely hot um conditions uh, um no, i think we just have to think about what happens in a heat wave even in Melbourne yeah. where people become short-tempered. You know, there can be people angry on the road. People are just, all they want is to, you know, get home and um, it, we can, you know, that sort of break out of anger and rage that we that we see in sort of road rage. I think that's that's nice. one of the things I imagine it, with, with the, it getting hotter and hotter and having more and more days of of um, continual heat, 
I think it's going to really stretch people's tolerance and and capacity to get along with each other. We have a couple of booklets that we've written. The first one's called Let's Speak About Climate Change, which is really um, an overview of all the psychological issues around climate change, the difficulty we have engaging with it, and um, why it starts off with talking about why it was a great... It's a great taboo to talk about it. And then it goes through... um, many of the ways in which we can understand people and then the processes that we've talked about quite covers quite a lot of what we've talked about today. Mm-hmm. And the other booklet is called Facing the Heat, Stories of Climate Conversations and there there's um, a number of conversations that we've actually had with people about mm-hmm. climate change and just they haven't all been wonderfully uh, wonderful outcomes but they we use them to illustrate some of the difficulties that arise in conversations and point to some of the psychological issues that are that are illustrated in the conversations. Um, that I often think that when you raise a subject and someone's resistant in various ways, that the next time they see the topic, they might read a bit more about it, yeah, or they you, might yeah. put their put their ears up when they hear it on the yeah. TV or radio. If you've held them in a particular way in the conversation, yeah. If you respond to them with uh, aggression and yes, if you then, then you've lost them, yeah. really, haven't you? Mm. It's about being holding them. In respectfully and hopefully influencing them in some way through your manner as as well as um, the content of what you say. Does that mean that we also have to be open as people who believe in this issue and really care about this issue to hearing the other side? I think we do. I, I think um, it, it, I think again if a respectful conversation is held um, and oh, look I had a really interesting conversation with somebody in in the camping ground at Christmas and um and somebody he asked me something about what I was doing and I told him and um he said oh yeah don't know about all that stuff and um so we had continued the conversation and uh, we continued over a couple of days actually and um uh, I really I know I did influence him to by listening to him and saying well I'm not sure that that's really the case you know that that you know I gave him a few in, bits of information about climate science but we did it in a very respectful way listening and he listened to me and um he ended up saying oh good luck with the issue you know <laughs> which of course can mean you know you get on with it and yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. keep away from it <laughs> but I didn't feel like that I felt yeah. like it was um but it was actually because of the the rapport that we were able to establish yeah. in the conversation that I was able to influence him. Yeah, because I had a, co- a conversation with my uncle, who's a farmer in southwest Australia, a couple of months ago about it, and mentioned that we're doing this issue, and and he's and I said, "Oh, do you feel? Are you seeing the effects? Are you feeling the effects being out on the land?" He's like, "No, no, no, I don't. I don't believe that this is actually happening," and um, I didn't know how to respond to it because I thought this is a man who has a very first hand experience mm. of the land and, mm. and more so knowing the climate than I do and I, I found that mm. really quite difficult to kind of mm. <laughs> open up but yes you know, well it is yeah. interesting because you know there's a group called farmers for climate action that mm. are formed actually because farmers there are farmers who are concerned mm. but I think um, I don't know about your your relative but I think it can be very painful to recognize mm. that it's tr- so because especially for your livelihood uh, depends on it and farmers have been you know they've dealt with all sorts of changes in the weather over climate over yeah, years sure. and they've they they've they're that. very resilient mm. you know they have a year of drought and they manage to keep going and 
um, and plant the seed the next time there's good rain and then they lose that and they still keep going. They're amazingly <laughs> optimistic and resilient people. So I think it's extremely hard for them to actually acknowledge that something really is um, happening that's got a, a deeper, yeah. Yeah, longer-term effect. And, and then, of course, they've got all the issues of the grief. And, and I know this from, I've talked to farmers, mm. that the grief is hugely deep because it means what about the future? What the farm they thought they're going to hand on to the yeah. next generation is suddenly going to be of no use. Mm. And so to actually face that climate change is occurring means facing those losses and really the impact on the, the next generation that they thought they'd pass the farm on to and their livelihood, what do they do in the meantime mm. themselves? It's just, mm. it's such a huge thing. So I I understand people being resistant because to f- it's it's like mm. we have done this to ourselves. Yeah. It's so it's so painful to mm. recognise mm. that actually we've we're the, the we've got the greatest capacity to solve it, but we've also we have done it to ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And now we have to fix it. We do. <laughs> and quickly. <laughs> quickly. Thanks for joining us for our special climate change series of the Dumbo Feather podcast. This edited conversation was produced by Beth Gibson and Nathan Scalaro. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned as we roll out more thought-provoking content on this issue, all part of Dumbo Feather's eight-week climate action challenge. You can sign up for that at dumbofeather.com. While you're at it, get your hands on a copy of Edition 52 and subscribe. We deliver worldwide.